Okay, so we're reading from John chapter 7, verses 25 to 52. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, When the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come out from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll get stuck into God's word. Father, we want to thank you for uh, this passage from Scripture this morning. We pray that you would give us uh, attentiveness now. Uh, We pray that we'd be able to focus on what your word is saying, and by your spirit that you would enlighten the darkness of our souls that we would uh, know Jesus more clearly and we would be bold in speaking to others about him. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In May 2006 in London, uh, a man by the name of Guy Goma turned up at the BBC studios to apply for a job. It was the same day that the High Court in Britain had brought down a landmark legal case, a ruling on uh, music internet downloads. And BBC uh, Channel 24, News Channel 24, was running live with the story. They had invited an internet expert uh, into their studio to uh, interview him about this landmark legal case. His first name was also Guy. And uh, the problem was that they ushered, they ushered the wrong guy onto the set. So Guy Goma, uh, who just turned up that day just to apply for a job, suddenly found himself being whisked into a studio under the spotlights with cameras rolling, being interviewed live on national television. Uh, they sat him down and when the interviewer introduced him, uh, it's said that his face kind of all scrunched up in sheer panic and he tried to explain but she got stuck into it with her questions. She said to him, are you surprised by what's happened today? <laughs> he said, yes, I'm very surprised. <laughs> and, uh, but apparently as the interview rolled on, he, he started to roll with it and he grew in confidence. She was asking him the questions and he decided to give the answers. And uh, he explained to the interviewer his views on the internet, on uh, music downloads, on piracy, on, on the impact that this legal decision would have for the uh, music industry. It was a bit like, um, you watch Thank God You're Here sometimes? It was a bit like one of those scenes, but it was for real. Uh, meanwhile, while all that was happening, the, uh, the real expert was sitting in the waiting room watching this all unfold on the monitor <laughs> and, and, and worried that his professional reputation was uh, in free fall because uh, the guy who everyone thought was him didn't know anything about what he was actually talking about. It was a case of mistaken identity, a very famous, well-known case of mistaken identity. And I think it's good for a laugh, don't you? That's a good, it's a good story. But it actually is also good because it introduces us to a topic which I think is far more serious, far more significant than that because there are times when we simply cannot make, afford to make a mistake about someone's identity. Uh, there are times when there is far too much at stake. And that was the issue which confronted those who met Jesus. Last week we looked at the first half of John chapter 7 and we saw that Jesus had uh, travelled to Jerusalem. Uh, it was a special time for the Jews. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And you know, you just imagine it. Jerusalem was buzzing. Uh, there was thousands of people who'd uh, come to Jerusalem from all over the place, from Judea, from Galilee, from other parts of the near world, you know, where Jewish communities lived, they'd converged on Jerusalem for this very special feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the topic that was on everybody's lip, everyone's lips, 
was the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? Who is this man who heals the sick? Who is this man who drives out demons? Who is this man who has been challenging the authority and exposing the religious leaders? Who is he? Well, in the second half of chapter 7, and you might want to have that open in your Bibles in front of you on page 756, Jesus made three astonishing claims about himself. And what I want to do uh, this morning is I want to, um, us to look at those three claims that Jesus made. They were claims which uh, were attractive to some people. They were claims which infuriated many others. What were the three claims that Jesus made? Well, firstly, he made a claim about his origin, where he came from. Uh, this was an issue for some people. Uh, let me show you why. In verses 25 to 27, again, imagine the scene. Jesus is in the temple court. He started to teach now. And there's people that have gathered around Jesus. They are listening to what he is saying. And some of those people were locals. They weren't people who'd come from outside they were people who lived in jerusalem they were people who in one sense were in the loop and they knew that the religious authorities wanted jesus dead and so they're thinking to themselves what's going on here the authorities want him dead but here he is teaching openly publicly why isn't anyone doing anything? Why aren't they arresting him? What's going on here? Have the religious leaders actually concluded that Jesus is the Christ? Well, by the way, I think it's important sometimes to stop and ask questions and not make assumptions um, about what we mean by Christ. What do we mean by the Christ? You know, I, I guess some people think that uh, Christ is Jesus' surname. You know, first name Jesus, second name Christ. You can understand that. Uh, in the Old Testament, the prophets had said that one day that uh, God was going to send a great king, a king who would rule over God's people. But he would not be like any other king. Because his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that would not end, a kingdom that would go on forever. Now, um, I've listed some of the prophecies in your uh, outline there, uh, prophecies in passages like Psalm 2 or 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, Micah chapter 5 and so on. Now, in Israel, when a person became a king, they were anointed. They were anointed with oil. And the, the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed. Uh, the word Christ comes from the Greek word, which also means anointed. So the Christ means the anointed one, the Lord's anointed one, the king 
That's what it means. It's like saying, Jesus Christ is like saying King Jesus. Now, some of the, the, so the question then is, the Jews were looking forward to this anointed one to arrive. Uh, There are many Jews today who are still waiting for this anointed one to arrive. The question is, is Jesus the anointed one? Is 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 he the Christ who was expected Well, some of the locals believed that when Christ came, that nobody would know where he came from. Uh, This is not a uh, view that came from scripture. It was a popular view that people held, that you would not know his origins. A bit like there was a king in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 14. Do you remember a guy by the name of Melchizedek? You hear a name like that, how could, how could you forget it? Right? And Melchizedek was a mysterious character because he met up with Abraham and Abraham honoured him. The thing about Melchizedek is that it's pointed out also in Hebrews that nobody knew where he came from. He appeared for a short while and no, no one knew where he went to. And it's a bit similar to this view that people had of Jesus, that they would not know where he came from. But the thing about, uh, or rather the Christ, but the thing about Jesus is that they did know where he came from. He was the carpenter from Nazareth. And so in verse 27, they're thinking, well, Jesus could not be the Christ. He's ruled out on the basis that we know where he came from. Now, that's kind of like the context which leads to Jesus' first claim because the question is, how does Jesus respond to that? Verses 28 and 29, have a look at those. Verse 28, Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me and you know where I came from, but I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Basically, Jesus says, look, never mind where I came from. The important issue is who I came from. I have come from the one who is true. He is the one who sent me. Now, they understood what Jesus was saying. They knew that this was a claim, that he was claiming that he came from God. But did you see what he also claimed? He claimed that they did not know God. Now, that is a stunning thing to say because there they are. They are in the temple. There are thousands of people there You can smell the roast meat from the uh, sacrifices that have been made. Everything's buzzing. The chief priests and all of the religious leaders are there. The people are there. They're in the temple in Jerusalem. This is the high point of Jewish worship. And Jesus says, you do not know God. That's like throwing a hand grenade into the situation. You can imagine the reactions. Well, We don't have to imagine because we're told... In verse 30, some people were outraged and they wanted to seize him. But not everybody. 
there are other people who reacted differently to Jesus. Uh, You see, one of the prophecies about the coming Christ was in Isaiah chapter 35. And in Isaiah chapter 35, uh, we're told that when God's kingdom would come, you would know that it had arrived because uh, the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the mute would be able to talk and, 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 and the, the disabled would be leaping for joy. Now, people knew that Jesus had done miracles. Um, lepers had been healed. Demons had been driven out. Blind people could now see. Deaf people could hear. Paralytics were walking around. People knew this. This is what had been going on. Some of them, they just heard of what had happened. Others had seen it, what Jesus had been doing. And so in verse 31, this particular group in the crowd, they turn to the others and say, well, what do you expect the Christ to do? What do you expect is going to happen? I mean, open your eyes, have a look at it. Do you think that when the Christ comes that he's going to do greater things than these? And so they actually put their faith in him. They were convinced. They believed in Jesus. Now, this was not good news for the religious leaders. How do you think they reacted? They they didn't want to hear people saying that they believed that Jesus was the Christ. I mean, you can't have that. You can't have the Christ turn up. You can't have God's anointed king turn up on your watch. They weren't happy about it. And so in verse 32, have a look at verse 32, they gave the temple guards, the religious police, the green light to move in and to arrest Jesus. Now they realised that they'd have to do so discreetly. Uh, They'd have to wait for the right opportunity and uh, do so quietly because they wouldn't want to cause a a riot to happen. That's the last thing that they would have wanted. But they gave the religious police the green light to proceed towards an arrest. Verse 32. So that's his first bold claim, that he came from God. His second bold claim was about where he was going to, his destiny. We see it in verses 33 and 34. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. Where did he say he was going? Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? He's saying, I'm going to the one who sent me. He's going back to God. Now, you and I know even more clearly what that meant because we have the privilege of living on this side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We know that it meant that he would die on a cross to pay for our sins. We know that he would be resurrected 
from the dead and that he would ascend into heaven to be with the Father from where he now rules in the hearts of all who put their trust in Jesus. We know that because we live this side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But in verse 35, the Jews, and what it means there is the Jewish religious leaders, they didn't even believe that he'd come from God in the first place. So there's no way in the world that they were going to believe that he was going back to God. In fact, if you look closely at it, they did not listen carefully to what he said because he made it clear. He said, I'm going back to the one who sent me and they're kind of scratching their heads and talking amongst themselves and saying, well, where's he going? Is he, is he going on a trip somewhere? You know, is he going maybe out to the, where the Greeks live to, uh, to preach to them? They didn't have a clue because they didn't believe and they didn't even listen carefully to what he said. So he claimed, firstly, to come from God. He claimed, secondly, that he would return to God. And thirdly, in verses 37 to 39, he claimed to be the giver of life. One of the uh, clearest Christian slogans that uh, people have come up with is the one that says, No Christ, no life. You heard that one? No Christ, K-N-O-W, or no Christ, N-O Christ. Um, it is a very provocative slogan because what it's saying is that if you know Christ, then you truly know life. You will know life as God intended it to be. But if you don't have Christ, then however good you think things might be going for you, you actually don't have life. No Christ, no life. Now, what are the three most basic things which we need to live? We need oxygen, don't we? We need food. What's the other thing we need to live? Water. What happens if you don't have water? You, you shrivel up and you die, don't you? That's what happens if you don't have water. Uh, verses 37 to 39. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Friends, how does a spiritually dead heart come back to life? And remember that in our natural state, we are all dead in our sins. We are dead to God. We follow our own ways. And so how does a spiritually dead heart come back to life? Well, it can only happen through an act of God, can't it? That's how it happens. 
And that is why after Jesus returned to his Father in heaven, that he then sent the Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to grasp who Jesus is and why what he has done is so important. It's only the Holy Spirit that gives us life that enables us to connect with God by faith and repentance. The Spirit always points us to Jesus. Now, this final claim of Jesus is very, very bold because it says that ultimately true life, that is forgiven life, eternal life, can only be found in Jesus. And what that means is that it is a life and death matter. The identity of Jesus is critical. So who did the, um, the people think that he was? Well, at the end of Jesus making these claims, in verses 40 through to 44, the crowd was still divided. Uh, some people said that he was a prophet. Others said, no, he is actually the Christ. And there were then others who reckoned that he was not the Christ and the reason they said so was on the basis that they knew that he came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now this is not the same as those who said that when the Christ comes we won't know where he is going to come from. These are people who actually got a, a better understanding of the scriptures uh, because the prophet Micah, uh, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, did say where the Christ would come from. And he said that the Christ would come from, any ideas? Bethlehem. Bethlehem, that's right. And that's why three decades before this, when the Magi, the wise men, had come from the east to Herod, and they said that the king has been born, we're looking for him, well, Herod called his advisers in and said, where does the scripture say that the king would be born? And they told him, Bethlehem, and he sent the troops in and he butchered every baby boy under the age of two. That's why he did it, because of this expectation from Micah that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Have a look at verse 41. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. So what town was Jesus from? He lived in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. So he actually fulfills the prophets, uh, prophet Micah, although they didn't know it. And so the crowd was divided. But what about the temple guards, these religious police? They'd been sent out uh, a day or so earlier to arrest Jesus. Uh, in verse 45, when they came back, they were empty-handed. They didn't have Jesus. Why? Why did they not arrest him? Well, because you're theologically minded, I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, well, because God is sovereign and because it wasn't Jesus' time to uh, be arrested as yet, that's true. The passage verifies that. 
But have a look at what these guys said. Verses 45 to 47. Uh, They said, finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees, who, by the way, hated each other's guts, but they were joined together by a common, common enemy, that's Jesus. The temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? And they answered, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. I reckon these were brave guards, don't you, to come back empty-handed. They risked being punished. But what did they think about Jesus? Well, they had the opportunity to sit in and listen to him teach. And they were blown away. They were enthralled. They were impacted by his teaching. And so in good conscience, they just couldn't bring him in. They couldn't do the job. It reminds me of that Roman centurion who was at the cross of Jesus who would have overseared the, um, uh, the crucifixion, who uh, in the end came to the conclusion, surely this man was the son of God. So that's the guards. What about the Pharisees? Where did this leave them? Boxed in a corner, I'd say, um, in verses 48 through to 52. And they could see what was going on and they lashed out at everybody. They insulted the guards. They cursed the crowd. They cursed the crowd. Have a look at what they said. What did they call the crowd? They called the crowd that mob. That mob who doesn't know anything about the law. Well, interesting point because one of their own, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, says, well, if you want to talk about law, then what about the law about a fair trial? about the law that says that you don't judge and condemn a man without bringing him in and having a conversation and finding out what he actually teaches and believes? What about that law? Well, how did they respond to Nicodemus? Verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, that's wrong actually. Jonah came from Galilee, but don't let facts get in the way of a good uh, telling telling someone off. Now, Jesus made radical claims. He claimed that he came from God the Father. He claimed that he was returning to God the Father in heaven. And he claimed that true and everlasting life can only be found in him. In short... He claimed to be the Christ. So what about us? Uh, Are we always bold? Are we always clear and bold about the identity of Jesus? You know what the problem is about being bold about Jesus and who he is? Problem is, that if we are bold and clear in talking to people about who Jesus really is, then they might treat us the same way they treated Jesus. And remember last week um, in 
the beginning of chapter 7, in verse 6, remember Jesus was having this conversation with his physical brothers and he said to them, or they said to him, they wanted him to go up to Jerusalem and he said, no, not quite yet, my time hasn't arrived, but you guys, you can go any time you want. He said that they could go to Jerusalem at any time. Why? Well, he said, because um, the world does not hate you. Um, you're safe. You can go to Jerusalem anytime. Uh, John actually adds to that and explains that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. That's why they could go to Jerusalem freely. No one was going to hate them. What about you? Uh, are you someone who believes in Jesus? I mean, truly believes in Jesus? Well, if you are, then uh, you're, in some sense, you're like Jesus' brothers, except you're a true brother of Jesus. Uh, you are a spiritual brother or sister of Jesus. And that actually means you're not safe. Uh, because you will want to speak clearly and boldly to people about who Jesus is. That Jesus is not just this mythical figure from the past, that Jesus is not just this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that Jesus is not just a good man or you know, some vague notions about him being a prophet, that Jesus actually is God the Son, that Jesus is now in heaven, that he rules from heaven that he's coming again. These are bold things to say about Jesus. And when we say bold things about Jesus, uh, we need to expect that uh, many people will simply reject what we say and they may actually reject you for being the person who said it. Um, if you're a normal, well-balanced person, um, you probably don't like being rejected. I don't like being rejected and I consider myself to be normal and well-balanced. Right? No one likes being rejected. But Jesus actually said that we should expect it and that that is the normal experience for Christians. Um, in, later on, in chapter 15, verse 18, you don't need to look this up, in chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, bear in mind that it hated me first. Um, John, in his first letter, in 1 John chapter 3, says, Brothers, do not be surprised if the world hates you. Because if we truly put Jesus first, then we're going to be bold and clear in telling people who we think he is and what he claimed. And his claims are very controversial because they say to people that you won't find life outside of Jesus. Uh, they say to people that uh, you will not find eternal life in other religions, uh, not in Muhammad, uh, not in Buddha, not in the Hindu gods or in, in other gods. Uh, nor will you find true life in material possessions, um, in the experiences of life, however good they might be, you know, the big house, the successful career. The... No, only in Jesus 
will your thirst for life be truly quenched? Now, these are bold claims which challenge people and for some people it's very offensive because it, uh, it really cuts uh, at something which is very basic to how they've lived their lives and how they've built their lives. And there will be many people who will not be happy and they might tell you that. They told Jesus that. But there will be others. There will be others who will be curious. There will be others who will want to find out more about Jesus. There will be others who, by reading his teachings, by hearing about his life, the miracles that he did, will think there is something more to this man. And perhaps they will be people who will come to the conclusion that he truly is the Christ and believe in him. Make no mistake, with the identity of Jesus, there is no room for error. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the boldness and the clarity of Jesus. Father, we thank you that this incident from his life has been preserved for us in the scriptures. We thank you that he has come from you, that he is now with you, and that he is the Lord, the giver of life. Uh, We thank you for the way that you've worked in our lives, and we pray that we would be people who have a true knowledge of Jesus, that we would be bold about his claims, that we will have a passion to see him honoured in the lives of others and a passion to see people coming to know that life which only he can give. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.